HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And I would have loved to introduce myself in the show in French, but I do not speak that beautiful and romantic language, but Lindsay Tremuda does. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. And the reason you're here is because Paris is not new, but somehow you were able to write a book about its newity, about its <laughs> rebirth um, in this way that I feel like Brooklyn has had a very similar trajectory in the past 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, that, that we found ourselves in arts and crafts and DIYs and small business. And that small business has grown to the point where it has uh, national, if not international appeal. Not to say that Paris doesn't have that international appeal. It is the first modern city in Europe. Uh, it is the city of light, the place that everyone wants to go to and be taken away by. Uh, what do you consider Paris to you? Is it an old city? Is it a new city? Is it burgeoning on something else? So that's a really good question. I think what really motivated any of the work that I've done on Paris is the blending of the two. So it's at a, it's been at a crossroads trying to reconcile its very, very uh, heavy and sometimes burdensome past um, that has held them back from embracing all of the things that they could be. Um, and in recent years, they've really started to open up and see, you know, all the good things that can come from trying to look forward and and create and innovate, but still respect the past. And so I think they've done a beautiful job and they being food artisans or crafters or artists, um, people in tech, you know, all across the board, they've done a beautiful job of honoring 
what came before and then building for the future. And so I think it, it took a lot of things for it to get to that point. Um, and now I don't see it stopping. Yeah. It's really on a road to, to huge things. Do you, do you see the parallels of your hometown, Philadelphia? <laughs> I know you go and visit the Liberty Bell. And it's like, that's still got a crack in it. Yeah. Like, well, actually, when I go to the Liberty Bell, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is once you've been to Europe, this really isn't as, <laughs> quite as a thrilling of an experience. But um, no, it's true. I sort of always felt like Philadelphia was phenomenal as a place and especially as a food city, but always in the shadows of New York and and other places. And so it's it's exciting to be in a city also that is very established, but has had to cross certain obstacles throughout its recent history in the role it uh, it maintains and, and its influence in a bigger food conversation globally. Um, and certainly other global cities, I mean, I, I travel a lot, you travel a lot, a lot of people are traveling uh, with greater ease. And so they end up in places where you know, the the food is either on the rise or super uh, fundamental to a, a local culture and are, you know, having transformative food experiences. And Paris needed to sort of up the ante and, and certainly correct some of the ills that were, were plaguing it for quite a while, namely the fact that there were sort of poor ingredients being used and in the things that you sort of expected by default were going to be good. Um, you know, that, that was holding it back in a lot of ways. And then it was too hemmed in by its, its past. Again, that's, that's something that you could say has been problematic for Paris for a long time. And, and so now I feel like it finally is like, this is who we are. We've got a lot of different cuisines now. And, you know, take us seriously. We're not just this like stuffy French cuisine focused uh, dining scene. There's a lot more. Yeah. I mean, but did you even approach Paris as a food city or, or I know your background is in French and literature. Did mm -hmm. you just hope to go over there and smoke and write soliloquies? So no to the smoking. <laughs> um, I just, I honestly wanted to become fluent. I wanted to master the language. And so my first uh, opportunities of being there helped get me toward that, you know, further along on that path. Um, and to be honest, I was actually quite a picky eater my whole life uh, until I moved there. And it sort of forced me to confront some of my uh, xenophobic eating habits, let's say. That's what my parents used to say, to call it. Um, and, and, and that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. So I developed an interest in food, despite having been someone who was like, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna make some scrambled yeah. eggs. And, you know, you know, very, very minimalist in what I was eating and, and certainly not very adventurous. So, you know, to, to, to explore a, a food, a, like a renowned food city as someone who doesn't really love food to the degree that, you know, and this was before, obviously we're talking 11 years ago, this is before everyone and their mother seemed to suddenly care about what they were eating, you know, but France is a place where people care by default of what they're eating. So I think that also influenced my turn toward, you know, being someone who's very uh, interested in what's behind what I'm going to choose to eat and, you know, how it was prepared. Um, I can't say I love cooking. That has not, um, <laughs> I have not adopted that uh, passion. But, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at what people can do with food, ingredients, their hands, you know, creatively speaking. So um, to, going back to your question, I didn't go for, for the food, but I actually found myself in some sort of a culinary awakening. Yeah, your blog, Lost in Cheeseland, was it named before or after that awakening? <laughs> that was named for, it was a place I knew was obsessed with cheese. 
uh, I was starting to fall in love with cheese and I was quite lost in the beginning. So it was sort of how, what kind of name can I come up with to stand out? Um, this obviously at a time we're going on 10 years ago where nine years ago where, um, there were numerous blogs, blogs were the thing. And so what do you call something to maybe stand out? And I just wanted to be kind of tongue in cheek and funny. And, and so I've stayed with it, but, um, but no, I mean, so it actually happened as I was on the road to finding myself into food. So, so simultaneous, I'd say. Was that first food cheese that made you feel like you were eating French food? And bread. Just copious amounts of bread. Um, and unfortunately, I've moved on to better bread, <laughs> far better bread. And I know, you know, what is and isn't good. Um, I can't say I have baguettes very often. That's sort of like the bottom of my... <laughs> Of the hierarchy of things I'm really interested in eating, that's like quite low. Um, but but those two things are so fundamental and, and also so comforting. Uh, and I was always into cheese, <laughs> you know, like even on, on anything, you know. Uh, and that's the Italian side of me, I think, you know. If there's not, I can't have anything Italian without some Parmesan somewhere in there, which m- might be seen as a crime to, to <laughs> some people. But, you know, that's just, so the cheese was easy for me to sort of latch on to as a as something comforting when I was there and the sweets that's pretty easy to to get on board with yeah so I mean there are there there are all these entry points and I'm always almost thinking of Paris as a city um and how the roads you know circle around that city and there are Mm -hmm. all these what do they call them ports yep yeah and that's the x that's where it becomes once you pass the let's say Port de la Chapelle or Port de Clignancourt you're beyond city limits yeah so I've been to Paris and where I've been driving around those ports Mm -hmm. in a a circle and it kind of feels like you were in that same kind of orbit for a while (laughs) trying to figure out how to enter Paris yeah 100% I mean I think um, for many people I mean even for some French people who are from other places in the country there is this you know uh, there's there's a level of not status, but there's a standard and, and you don't know how you're going to be perceived, right? So the Parisians have a certain attitude and not necessarily a poor attitude. They just have a a way about them. And so if you're from Marseille or you're from London, you know, it's, it's navigating a whole new universe, just like people come to New York and they don't really know the proper codes right away. And so I felt that was, that was what it was like for me in Paris. And then you quickly learn, so you can, you can, sort of integrate yourself behaviorally into many, many different situations, but there's still something about you that will remain foreign. And that's something I've battled the 11 years I've been there. And now I feel probably more French than I feel American, but but I'll still always be an American. Yeah. Somewhere what, along what, the way. What what are the proper codes to order something like du café crème s'il vous plaît? I mean, you always say bonjour first. And that actually goes well beyond the, the food space. If you go into a shop and you want to ask someone a question, you do not go, uh, yes, I'd like to know. No, it's bonjour. Oui, j'ai une question. And then you go on. And, of course, we all learn the hard way, which is you go up to a salesperson or, you know, a butcher or whatever, and you just say, yes, I'd like. And then they go, uh-huh, bonjour. And so they tell you right away that you, you just committed a crime, uh, you know, a social crime. Uh, so... So that's definitely something you would do in a cafe as well. You know, bonjour, oui, I would, you know, if you say it in French, uh, oui, j'aimerais bien un café crème, s'il vous plaît. 
I'm just going to take that audio clip and replay it <laughs> while I'm in Paris. So. I could also come with you. Yeah. I'll just be your personal orderer. But I think that was always my fear about Paris. The first time I went, I knew there were these proper codes and there was this etiquette attached to it. And I was so fearful of um, doing that incorrectly or offending or... and and. Paris isn't like that anymore. No. It feels so accessible. And not just because I've been there numerous times, but it is a new Paris in that sense. No, it's had to uh, wake up to a lot of things. So it wasn't just cooking. It wasn't just the food itself, but it's also how you're treating customers. And um, I think certainly what's been beautiful to see is this this whole sort of either these wine cellars, these wine bars, the new bistros, you know, everything that's been uh, made more informal uh, they all seem to be influenced by experiences they've had elsewhere. So that might mean, you know, the owner is is foreign or the owner has spent time in, you know, I don't know, San Francisco, Tokyo, wherever, where there is an emphasis on treating people properly. And th- there's this idea, I think, also of wanting to create regulars. If you look at a lot of these Septime La Cave, you look at Buvette, you look at re- like so- some of those restaurants in that same genre, People go all the time, and there's a reason. It's because there's a sense of community, and you can't create that community without treating people well. Um, and I and I also think with social media, people can't get away with it anymore. You start blasting on about how horrible your service was at X, Y, and Z, and that's actually going to have an effect. You know, Google reviews, all of those things are now super important where they weren't or not even existent. You know, some time ago, and it would you'd have to rely on you know a journalist to be really. Um, completely honest about a a service experience in a newspaper or a magazine. So now it's so instantaneous, as you know, that they can't really get away with, you know, horrid service. It still happens, but it's much less so. You know, and with an influx of 29 million people per year as Mm. visitors to that city, you have to embrace that. Yeah. And and, I mean, has that trickled down to the taxis? I mean, it's still a work in progress, but um, certainly there's... It's a, it feels to me like a far more global city and not just, I mean, before, I mean, it's in population been very, very cosmopolitan, but not in attitude. And I think that's what's the biggest change is seeing the way there are, there's just greater acceptance for outside influence. And, and that doesn't mean that you're losing uh, the, the Frenchness or a Parisian-ness um, because as I'm sure you know, Parisians were very, very, and not just Parisians, but the French in general, were very concerned that by accepting, I don't know, burgers and all of these other types of foreign concepts that they were going to somehow lose their sense of self and Paris was not going to look like Paris. Um, and it always makes me laugh that people compare Paris to Brooklyn, uh, which I think is just completely incomparable in terms of vibe um, to say you know, an area of Paris is like Brooklyn, especially when people haven't really spent, you know, enough time in both seems like an easy thing, just like, an, you know, let's just fill a box. What is Paris like? But I think Paris operates on an entire, entirely different wavelength. It's not better. It's not worse. But, you know, you there, there are things that are just universally now interesting for diners, if we're talking about food. Um, and so it's not that surprising that it would eventually make its way into into Paris. And that doesn't mean it's copying Brooklyn or it's, you know, trying to be more like London. It's, it's, it's population wants those things. I will say both cities share a penchant for dogs pooping between parked cars. <laughs> I mean, that's just, I don't know that that's going to ever change much to, much to my grave disappointment, but as, as much as things change, they still say the well, same. Well, exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Lindsay Trimuda and the new Paris. 
This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollock scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollock is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollock. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Lindsay Tremuda of The New Paris. Mm. Um, First of all, just flip to the back of the book because the guide alone, you know, that index of places to go, to eat, to drink, to to shop and see is is a book in and of itself. And I feel like that should be a guide that most Americans, if not all, receive as they deboard in Charles de Gaulle. Because <laughs> it's, it's really outstanding. It was the hardest part to put together because I had to, you know, you only have so many pages, as you know, uh, and it really needed to be a tight list. Uh, so that was probably the most painful part of the whole book. Yeah, But then you must hate this next question. Oh, oh I'm going to Paris. Where should I eat? Well, I would follow up with another annoying question, which is, well, what's your budget? Where are you staying? How far do you want to go? What are you allergic to? Because that's another question you really need to ask. But what is the path through Paris that really kind of shows where it's been in the past decade or two? Who, who starts that movement of bistronomy, neo-bistros, uh, the places you eat today? Well, most people and most of the uh, people writing about food in the last decade will point to Yves Comdebord um, with his his work. And today you will find him at L'Avant Comptoir. Uh, he has a few other locations um, and he's doing other things right in that immediate area in Saint-Germain. So he's he's very much a fixture of the left bank. You've got Stéphane Gégaud of Lamy Jean in the 7th arrondissement. Again, not where, uh, not in the east side of the city where much of the, the bigger change happened later. Um, but, the, I mean, people like them were super important in taking the white tablecloth off the table and saying, like, let's stop being stuffy about this. Um, and and so then you had, obviously, um, people like uh, Bertrand Gribault of Septime, who was really the first person to, to elevate the level of cooking. So sort of Michelin standard, um, e- more gentle prices, and you know, bare wood tables, very almost rustic feeling, open kitchen plan. Um, and so it felt very accessible. And that was, he was one of the first people really to show diners that you could still be creative and not, and, and have this beautiful um, plating and this beautiful produce and how he could sort of create within uh, a certain season or with whatever he could get at the market. And and it still be beautiful without costing a fortune. Um, so he was another one more recently who who is extremely instrumental in the way neo bistro cooking has has played out. Yeah, I mean, it, it blows my mind that these tenants of natural, seasonal, creative 
um, didn't really apply to a lot of Parisian cooking before. I've also been to Rungis, uh, you know, which is what Leal was, the marketplace in the city, then moved outside near Orly Airport. And to see food removed so far from the city center, um, it, it's kind of allegory to what happened in Paris and, and why there is this new renaissance. For sure. And, and I think um, as people, uh, people being consumers and diners, are more and more concerned with what they're eating, they want to make sure that if they're going to spend even if it's 20 euros, 25 euros on something, they're going to want to know uh, that it's not coming from, you know, uh, it's not just been pulled from the microwave. Um, and, and that, unfortunately, was the case for a lot of places. And it's still probably true today in some, you know, in some spots of the city. But there's been a real push to transparency. And so that's now sort of standard. You come in and you, you, you know, it's found out that you've, you know, uh, fooled people in some way. Parisians do not take kindly to that. <laughs> um, and so what's nice about it is that you can have an experience at some of these restaurants that's ever changing. Um, Daniel Rose, obviously, who's been in the news a lot for the Le Coucou in New York, he's got Chez La Vieille and La Bourse et la Vie, which are very classic um, bistros in Paris. And the menu tends toward... Um, classic recipes that you might find in a, in a cookbook. So there's maybe less in the way of hyper seasonality. The menu doesn't necessarily change every single day. Um, but you can have both the classic and something that's completely dependent on, you know, what they were able to get in from the local producer. Um, and, and terroir d'avenir, which is a, is a purveyor, a local, um, food purveyor, you know, they supply, vegetables and meat to a lot of the big restaurants like Frenchie, um, like, you know, name, name a Neo Bistro and they're probably working with them at least for some of their products. And I know long ago, um, and it may even have been Gregory Marchand at Frenchie who said to me once that, you know, he would, all the chefs would get a text message the night before uh, the new delivery of, okay, I've got three rabbits. We've got X number of, you know, whatever. And it's up to the chefs to respond quickly and claim it. So that's why sometimes you were seeing some of these unusual pairings on menus as well. It's because, okay, the chefs were going to cook whatever they could get their hands on. And so there's a lot of spontaneity and creativity that comes out of that kind of um, restraint or limitation. I think it's interesting you mentioned Daniel Rose and, uh, you know, Frenchie, Gregory, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the same vein, because they... they well, one had a stint in New York. Gregory worked at Gramercy Tavern before going back to his native France. Um, and Daniel, you know, is a Chicagoan, cooked in Belgium, France, etc. But uh, he may be one of those un American right. that you speak of. Um, but then there's Charles Compagnon. Compagnon. Uh, yeah, who has Who's Les Richers. Uh And he spent time in New York kind of formalizing the ideas that he wanted to take back to Paris. And he spent time at the James Beard Foundation for just under a year or so. Um, and and he, he comes from a long line of Auvergne. Uh, so the, you know, people from Auvergne are, are you know, are in the food business. Um, and he essentially upped the ante as well with, you know, all day service and, um, you know, at least at the 52 Faubourg Saint-Denis, which is my favorite, and I'm sorry, that's like really long-winded, but uh, we call it the 52 otherwise. Um, 
you know, you can go in at any time of day and have something and it's all going to be delicious and wines are really affordable. And it's, it's so accessible and they're so accommodating even, which is not something you would normally expect from a, you know, a, a brasserie that's open all day. So I would call his 52 a neo-brasserie. And then he's got Le Richet, which is a couple blocks over, and that's more of a neo-bistro. And then he has a more pro- uh, formal restaurant called uh, L'Office. So that one you can actually make reservations at. Um, but again, it's like, I don't ever worry when I go in there that I won't find something I'm in the mood to eat. Uh, I know it'll be different. And it's always delicious. Um, and, and actually, I took uh, uh, my sister who came to Paris for the first time last year, and she had some temporary allergies. And, and I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? Um, and they were sort of like strange slash fundamental ingredient type of allergies, right? Like onions and garlic. And those are in a lot of French dishes. And I asked, uh, I asked the, well, I asked Charles actually if his team would be able to, to accommodate within those restrictions. And he's like, absolutely just tell them. And they totally worked around it for her um, and gave her one of the best experiences she had in Paris that whole trip. And you wouldn't necessarily think that a neo bistro like that where with such a, a menu that's, you know, created clearly from whatever was picked up at the market that they would necessarily be willing to um, make amendments in that way. And I think ultimately there are more and more intolerances and, and they've had to get used to accommodating in that way. Well, I mean, comfort equals accommodating more so than anything else these days. And, mm. you know, for an American going to Paris, uh, luckily there are things like Chinese food <laughs> and Texas barbecue there now, too. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I didn't even grow up with Texas barbecue, and I realized what I was missing in my life before. <laughs> um, yeah, Thomas Abramovich uh, lived in New York for several years while he was working for LVMH, the conglomerate, and was living with a Texan. And so he sort of brought him into the tradition of Texas barbecue. He spent Thanksgiving in Texas and, you know, he sort of like found his, his calling, so to speak, and, um, has opened a place called the beast. And now he's got the beast too, which it's in Belleville. And actually what's super cool, because you mentioned Chinese food just before, there is a second restaurant within the second beast location called son of a beast. (laughs) And he is doing, uh, Chinese, smoked tasting menu um not smoked for the sake of smoking something but finding at least in one dish so let's say it's some sort of dumpling uh that some element will be smoked and not overpowering but there it's it's testing how he can incorporate and use the smoker to uh to sort of shake up different types of cuisine and it's phenomenal so you know it's super original he has uh shown us that a frenchman can absolutely bring something foreign to the table and do it kind of masterfully. Can a Frenchman bring something American like a burger to a truck and make it masterful? They've done that, although it did start with an American woman. So um, Kristen Frederick really brought that trend to Paris. Um, And now we don't even talk about food trucks, really. They're still there. Um, But most of them have actually used that as a stepping stone to get into a real brick-and-mortar space. So, you know, I don't have to go searching for burgers. That's part of the landscape. And no one sees that as, like, an offense to French culture. You know, yeah. it's uh, it's on even your worst brasserie or corner cafe menus. You'll have a crappy burger on there. But, you know, it just goes to show you how it's something that the Parisians actually really were ordering. You know, even 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 at its early stages, it was something they were hungry for. And now it's everywhere. And But not in a in-your-face way. It's just, it's there. And you know where to get it when you want it. The only thing I liked about 
burgers pre Burger Truck Day in Paris was that I got to call it McDo. Oh <laughs> yeah, well, but not that I ever went to McDonald's, but it, I just I thought it was a cute little euphemism. <laughs> well, and and that's not uh, slowed in, in 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 its client base. Honestly, I mean Parisians. Sadly, we'll go there. Um, so I, I know how people often think that Parisians just somehow have far better taste than everyone else, and I tend to disagree. Yeah, I mean, well, let's go back to bread, which we initially talked about, and you said, you know, baguettes are kind of at the lower end. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I often hear is you have to go to Dupin. Dupin et des idées. And, and, but why? What, what is so good about this new era of bread in Paris? What is so inventive? Well, first of all, if you have to look at the way bread was treated before. Um, you go into a cafe, a brasserie, wherever, a restaurant, not a fine dining restaurant, but just, you know, another restaurant. And bread is served to you free of charge. It's not like Italy where, you know, you touch those breadsticks, you're going to pay for them. Um, and, and so there was this thought, thinking that it's like, well, we're giving this to you for free, so you'll take what we give you, basically. And unfortunately, that did not go with a lot of type of cooking. And bread didn't need to be this afterthought. It really could uh, be flavorful. And, and also there was a lot of bread being done poorly. Um, baguettes, you know, they do have to respect certain steps. Um, just like the baguette tradition, which is the crunchier one, the one I would eat. Um, and, and same thing with sourdough. Like there, it wasn't being done to the way it should have been. And I think you had some of these bakers who wanted to, to change that um, and saw an opportunity. Um, so um, Christophe Vasseur at Dupin et des Idées, he's been, I mean, he has a line around the block every single day of the week and not the weekend because he's closed. <laughs> um, and that does not, you know, ruin his business in any way. But he's got something called the Pain des Amis, which is very rustic. It's crunchy. It's, it's flavorful. It's hearty. And a lot of cafes are sourcing the bread from him. You also now have 10 Bells Bread. So 10 Bells was a, is a coffee shop and the owners opened uh, another location. So it's both coffee shop and they're making all of their breads, all of their sandwiches, all of their baked goods. Um, and, and so you have people who are really putting a lot of focus on bread because it should not be an afterthought. You know, there are all these very singular things and uh, I never know how to say this word, but they're those little cream puffs. Ah, merveilleux. Uh, someone can be so focused on these singular things now and, and kind of be lauded for that. Like, I go to Jacques Chenin for those mango caramels. Oh, yeah. And I, I take as many pâté de fruit as possible. But what are the singular food items that people are craving right now? And the crafts people are just hitting on all cylinders. Well... You had for a while, you know, the, the eclair shops. Um, L'Eclair de Genie was, a, you know, uh, one of them that has actually expanded very, very quickly, even since the book came out. Um, and he's opened sort of everywhere, it seems, um, and focusing on the eclair. You had, obviously, at one point, shops that really specialized in macaron, did some other things, but, you know, really their signature was the macaron. Um, and Au Merveilleux de Fred, which is also in New York City, uh, they have one location, um, that's that's the focus. And actually, it started in Lille, so in, in the northern part of France, um, and that is still their best city. So Paris, although he has, uh, the, the, the pastry chef has a couple of locations, Lille is still the best performing city. But, you know, in Paris, that's all all they have, basically. Um, and like you described, they're um, meringue mounds that are filled with some sort of a cream and coated with, let's say, chocolate or coffee 
crunchy things and um and it's actually quite light and and airy and delicious and and i think the idea for many chefs is it is really hard economically to have a viable pastry shop when you're producing i don't know sometimes 20 something pastries and you know and then you're doing sable cookies and you're doing marshmallows and you're doing chocolates and all of these things i mean to break even that's certainly kind of difficult so if you can master how to scale uh, one thing and do it perfectly, well, you have yourself a model that was certainly very attractive to some of these people following the economic crisis. Um, and certainly, you know, it, it, it appeals because it's just that one thing. Um, and if you go to a, a, you know, a pastry, a normal pastry shop with different types of desserts, you're not going to get the variety in eclairs, for example, that you would get at just going to that one store. Um, so certainly there's a, and I think people have too much choice. I mean, I come to New York City and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to eat. I don't know where to go. There's way too much here. The bagel alone is like, you know, a 15 minute decision. Um, and, and I think that's, what a lot of people feel also when they go to Paris and they see these beautiful bakeries and they don't know how to choose. And so I think it adds something nice, uh, to the, to the offering. It takes a little bit of indecision out of, out of choosing what you're going to nosh on. Um, or if you need all those options played out in front of you, there's Maison Plisson. Right. There's Maison Plisson, but actually my favorite is Food de Patisserie, which is a concept pastry shop. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe you'd call it like the Colette of pastry. Um, and they actually, what's interesting is that's run by the editors of the, a magazine of the same name, a food magazine. And so they've developed over the years a relationship with Pierre Armé, with Thierry Lignac, which, with, you know, plenty of other pastry chefs who were willing to give up um, sort of control over how their products are sold and, and talked about um, and, and, and gave a couple of different of recipes, a different, you know, a couple different pastries to this store every single day. And so it's, you have a little bit of Pierre Aimé, you have a little bit of Jacques Genin, you have a little bit of uh, Carl Marletti, who's another chef I really like. And, and so you can go to the second arrondissement and pick up something so you don't have to race around town. You're like, oh, I want to go to, you know, Pierre Marcolini, but he's across town. But up oh, right here, you can get a bunch of them in one spot. So and you are that source too. I mean, and the new Paris, you you have this curatorial uh, ability to <laughs> to kind of guide someone along their best Parisian path. And you know, with that, I usually go to a city, and the first thing I really want to know is where to get a good drink. Mm. And craft cocktails are certainly on the rise in Paris. They're very well established there now, and I feel like you get some of your best information over uh, a couple libations at night. So where would you go to drink, and what are those bartenders that would tell you the right places to go to in the morning? Um, well, it depends how many of them are actually awake in the morning, <laughs> I guess. Uh, some of them have really late nights. Um, they're all, they all seem to you know, frequent the guys in the food business as well. So you know, when you're hanging out in that kind of environment, you, you can at least be sure they know a few places uh, for where to eat. Um, so I really like the team at Le Marie Celeste. Um, it's the Quixotic Projects who's behind the Marie Celeste, behind Candelaria, which Candelaria is always ranked in the top, I want to say 30. Um, maybe, yeah, I think the top 30 of the world's best bars in the world. I, that's redundant, world's best bars. <laughs> um, and they also have Glass Hero, and they just opened Les Grands Verts at the Palais de Tokyo, which is their biggest venture um, 
to date. Uh, and and Mamari Celeste is a good vibe. People there, I know they like good food because the food actually at the bar is very good. Um, and then I really like um, Sullivan Doe and what he does at Le Syndicat and more recently at La Commune. So he's got two bars. He's now more at La Commune, which is in Belleville. And he's the one who completely brought French spirits back into the, fo- you know, to the forefront. Um, par- uh, Parisians and, and I would say overall French drinkers don't really know you know, much about cognac or armagnac and, and certainly not how it can blend into cocktails. So he's been a, a proponent of, of classic French spirits and preserving that. And, and he, again, knows where to go for coffee. will know where to, you know, go, get a light bite to eat. Um, so, and those are only two. So I think that's a good start at least. Yeah. Yeah. And there is so many great places to start in Paris. It's, it's almost unfair for me to ask you that question again. Where would you go to eat? Where would you go to drink? Once again, it's all in your book, so people can read the new Paris for that information. But where do you hope Paris goes? Uh, what direction do you hope food and drink takes? Uh, and, and can Paris change any more than already has? Um, I think there's still room for, for growth, for sure. I mean, I think there's a lot that needs to be done in the area of sustainability, and there are a couple of of places that are trying to get behind that. Namely, again, Les Grands Verts, so Quixotic Projects with the Palais de Tokyo restaurant, they've um, made low waste a priority in what they're doing. Uh, you can see that even from the lack of bottles behind the bar. You know, they, they get all of their, their liquor and their spirits delivered and they, or you know, it's been delivered in some sort of large jug and then they transfer it to glass bottles that they have, but they're not, you know, they're trying to do reuse and limited packaging and low waste as much as possible. And I think, you know, for a long time, you have chefs that will use, do whole beast cooking. So you're not going to waste any element of, of, of an animal. Um, and that is super noble, uh, you know, something to, to, to uphold. However, does that extend to vegetables and are you composting and are you doing all these things? And I think that, um, you know, Paris already is a very polluted city, unfortunately. And, you know, if restaurants can make an effort in their own way to kind of reduce the, the carbon footprint and, you know, help where they can, I think that can actually do a lot of good in educating the the dining population. Um, so I, I think there's room there. I think in terms of Mexican food, we, we're, still hovering around uh, tacos and burritos and and that kind of thing where I just ate at Cosme. Is that how you pronounce it? Last night. And, and that blew me away and it was super flavorful, super creative and, you know, has obviously Mexican elements to it, but is just beautiful food. And I think we need to get away from those sort of, um, not stereotypical, but certainly those signature cuisines in any type of cooking um, and see how we can push that further. I really feel like Paris is now a city of multiculturalism, Mm -hmm. uh, if it wants it or not. (laughs) You know, it really has kind of embraced that 29 million people come in and out of that city a year, and some people, like Lindsay Trimuda, stay and thankfully become guides for us by writing The New Paris. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. This was a treat. And if we haven't told you enough great things about that great city, she too has her own podcast called The New Paris Podcast. And where can we find that? On iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you download and stream apps. Excellent. Well, I'll see you you, uh, soon in Paris for uh, Cafe Creme. Can't wait. (laughs) Excellent. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Big thank you to Castor and Pollux for sponsoring, music by Cookies, and David Tadashore Engineering. 
Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.